Welcome to the History of North America. I'm Mark Vinette. To comprehend Champlain, we must understand the character of the king he served so faithfully. Let's continue our deep dive into the life and times and exploits of Samuel Champlain with the help of excerpts from David Hackett Fisher's book, Champlain's Dream. In the long history of France, Henry IV has a unique place. It has been said that he was the only king whose memory was cherished by the people. His subjects remembered him as Henri le Grand, Henry the Great. In physical terms, he, like Champlain, was not a large man. But there was a greatness in his acts and thoughts, a largeness in his energy and resolve, and an astonishing amplitude in both his virtues and his vices. The character of Henry IV appeared in the nicknames that his subjects invented for him. They celebrated him as Le Roi de Coeur, the King of Hearts. Others called him Le Passionné, the Passionate One, or Le Roi Libre, the Free King. In his many love affairs, Henry IV was indeed all these sobriquets at once. At the same time, his nicknames described a unique style of kingship that flowed from the heart. He was known to leave his palace incognito and mix with his subjects in informal ways. As a leader, he was open, informal, warm, free-spirited, brave, witty, clever, generous to friends and enemies alike. Even with this cultivation of intimacy and informality, and in spite of his many vices, the king's spirit and vision awakened great enterprises and inspired others to undertake them. Henri Le Grand was a man who made a difference in other men's lives. As Champlain called himself a man of Saintonge, so Henry was called Le Bernet, the man of Bern. He came from the mountains of southwestern France, was born in the shadow of the Pyrenees, and brought up in a country chateau of great antiquity that still survives as his monument. In the year 1559, when Prince Henry of Bern and Navarre was barely six years old, a bizarre medieval accident transformed the history of modern France. In royal celebrations for the marriage of a princess, King Henry II entered a jousting tournament. He succeeded in smashing his opponent's lance, but a splinter from the shattered weapon pierced the king's eye. The wound festered, and Henry II died suddenly at the peak of his considerable powers. That chance event came at a bad moment. Most people throughout the country shared an ideal of Christian unity. Une foi, une loi, un roi. One faith, one law, one king. But the reality was very different. The kingdom was divided against itself. The population of France was growing beyond its means. In a time of rapid inflation, extremes of wealth and poverty were increasing, and social orders were moving apart. Bitter conflicts developed between the Catholic House of Guise in the east, the Protestant House of Condé to the west, and the more moderate houses of Montmorency and Bourbon to the south. All dreamed of succeeding the House of Valois, which had ruled France for three centuries. These dynastic rivalries were deepened by religious divisions. Most people in France were Roman Catholic in 1559, but Protestants were making converts everywhere, even within leading Catholic families. 
On both sides, religious leaders aroused feelings of intense fear and hatred. This was the dangerous moment when Henry II died suddenly from the splintered lance. He was succeeded by his young son, Francis II, barely fifteen years old, weak of body and frail of mind. This child king was dominated by his formidable adolescent wife, sixteen-year-old Mary, Queen of Scots, and also by her French relatives in the Catholic House of Guise. They hated Protestants with a passion and chose the path of violent repression. The result was a disaster for France. Protestant evangelists were rounded up and tried for heresy, which was a capital offense. Victims who continued to protest their innocence had their tongues cut out before they were tortured and burned so that they could not preach to the people who gathered to watch their agony. After 18 months of growing disorder, young Francis died in 1560 and was succeeded by his even younger brother, Charles IX, who was 10 years old. Power passed to his Italian mother, Catherine de' Medici, and for a time she ruled the kingdom from a small study in her beautiful chateau of Chenonceau. In 1562, Catherine tried to restore peace to France by proclaiming limited toleration of dissenters. It was not enough to please Protestants and too much for Roman Catholics. A fatal incident followed. On March 1, 1562, a quiet Sunday morning, the militant Catholic Duke de Guise was on the road from his estates to court with a large escort of men-at-arms. As he approached the town of Vassy in Champagne, he heard a bell calling Huguenots to worship in a grange. As the soldiers approached, there was an exchange of epithets, then a volley of stones. The Duke's men stormed the grange, killed and wounded more than a hundred Protestant men, women, and children, and burned the building. The result was the first war of religion, which set the pattern for many wars to follow. Catholic atrocities happened in Saint and Tours, where 200 Huguenots were bludgeoned and drowned in the river Loire. Those terrible scenes were followed by a Protestant outrage called the Sauterie in Montbrisson, when Huguenots hurled hundreds of Catholic prisoners from a high tower into fires that were burning below. This first war of religion ended in a shaky truce at Amboise in 1563, but the violence quickly resumed. The killing continued until the exhausted combatants were too weary to continue. The result was a precarious truce called the Peace of Longjumeau. That peace also failed, and was followed by a third and even larger religious war in 1568-70. to 70. The violence spread to the south and west of France during Champlain's childhood. Some of it rose from angry acts of aggression by French Protestants against Catholics. Much of it came from popular violence by Catholic confraternities against Huguenots and anyone who tried to stay neutral. The people of Bordeaux lived in mortal fear of a sadistic gang called the Band Cardinal, who wore the Bonnet Rouge and tortured, raped, and murdered Huguenots all in the name of Christ. Saint-Ange became a theater of war, and Champlain's town of Brouage changed hands many times while he was a child. Warring armies marched and countermarched through Saint-Ange. They foraged and plundered in a time of famine, plague, and suffering. In the midst of these horrors, Champlain was probably raised as a Protestant in a world of intense religious hatred and incessant war. The worst was yet to come. 
1571, Catherine de' Medici and Jean d'Albret arranged a dynastic marriage between their children, the attractive Catholic princess Marguerite de Valois and the handsome Protestant prince Henri de Berne et Navarre. It was to be a marriage of two religions in the hope of lasting peace. A sumptuous wedding was planned for Paris, and Henry rode into town with 1,500 Huguenot leaders. The Catholic nobility turned out in even greater numbers. The ceremony of betrothal took place with outward harmony on August 17, 1572, and the wedding the next day was a brilliant affair. Marguerite de Valois wrote in her splendid memoirs, I blazed in diamonds. Margot, as she was called, was beautiful, intelligent, and bitterly unhappy. She was reported to be in love with the Catholic Duc de Guise, and it is said that she refused to say yes at the wedding until her infuriated brother, King Charles IX, intervened and bent her crowned head forward by brute force in an unwilling gesture of assent. Four days of celebration followed, but behind the scenes, the leaders of the House of Guise and the Catholic Church were outraged by the wedding and appalled by the ecumenical spirit that it symbolized. On the last day of the marriage festivities, as the great Huguenot leader, Admiral Gaspard de Coligny, was riding through a Paris street, a shot rang out. This leader of the Protestant cause was severely wounded. But Charles IX promised protection to the Huguenots, and they remained in town. Rumors spread that Protestant assassins were planning to cut the king's throat and seize the throne. On the night of August 23, 1572, Catholic leaders persuaded the terrified monarch to make a preemptive strike against the Huguenots. He agreed. The gates of the city were closed. Boats in the Seine were chained to their moorings, and the Catholic militia of the city was armed. The next night, Prince Henri de Berne and the Protestant Duke de Condé were summoned to the king's chamber and arrested. Early in the morning, the wounded de Coligny was murdered in his bed. That was the signal for a massacre. Huguenot nobles that had gathered for the wedding of Henry were attacked. Nearly 1,500 were killed, many with their families, in what became remembered as the Massacre of St. Bartholomew's Day. The slaughter spread through the city. Catholic children were given the task of castrating and disemboweling the body of Admiral de Coligny and dragging the remains through the streets of Paris in a ritual of degradation. In the king's chamber, Prince Henri de Berne and Navarre was given a choice, immediate conversion or instant death. On September 26, 1572, he rejoined the Catholic Church. The Catholics kept him at court in luxurious captivity, closely guarded and carefully watched. The Protestant movement suffered a shattering blow, but it survived. Huguenot armies withdrew into strongholds such as La Rochelle and held their ground. At court, Prince Henry appeared to lose himself in dissipation, but he was biding his time. An opportunity came after 1574, when Charles IX died and Henry III de Valois came to the throne. A new attempt at coexistence followed. Protestants were granted safe havens. Prince Henri de Berne and Navarre was allowed to leave the court and was given the government of Guienne in southwestern France. Once at large, he abjured Catholicism and went to La Rochelle, where Protestant leaders received him without enthusiasm. Both sides distrusted him. Henry began to go a third way, looking for a middle path between the contending parties. 
In Guienne, he cracked down on violence by Protestants and Catholics alike and recruited an army from men of both faiths. He deeply believed that nothing could be more unchristian than the atrocities that had been perpetrated by both sides in the name of Christ. He stood for the unity and pride of France and for the welfare of its afflicted people. When towns and nobles tried to fight him, he moved against them with courage, energy, and quick decision. He began to expand his control over southwestern France. Then came another bizarre event. The reigning king of France, Henry III of Valois, began to take notice of the growing popularity of Prince Henry of Bern and Navarre, as did the leader of the High Catholic Party, Henry of Guise. The result was yet another cycle of violence that culminated in the War of the Three Henrys and five more years of strife, starting from 1584. In this bloody struggle, Prince Henry of Bern and Navarre skillfully divided Henry of Valois from Henry of Guise. In 1587, he defeated them in open battle. After bitter fighting, two of the three leaders were assassinated. Of the three Henrys, only Prince Henry of Bern and Navarre was left standing. In 1589, he became King Henry IV, the first monarch of a new Bourbon dynasty that would rule France for more than two centuries. When Henry IV converted to Catholicism in 1596 to end France's history of savage internecine warfare and unite the capital, he famously quipped, Paris is well worth a mass. Check out the YouTube version of this episode, which has accompanying images. I'm Mark Vinette, and I hope you're enjoying the ride. <laughs>